right before one of the big events, he, he, at 88 years old, he rolled his 240Z on his way to Jordan Winery. I think he was late for a meeting. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a show dedicated to the people, places, and stories that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and on today's show, I sit down with Joel Aiken. Hi, my name is Joel Aiken. I'm the owner of Aiken Wines and Aiken Wine Consulting. Joel has a fascinating story about his journey in the wine business, from making wines for one of Napa's most historic and respected wineries, to helping to find the Rutherford ABA of Napa Valley, as well as owning his own winery and consulting for famous brands. Joel's journey begins in Fresno, California. Right, right, yeah. So I grew up in the Fresno area, and actually in high school we lived in Clovis and had 15 acres of um, peaches and grapes. And it's interesting, the first thing my dad did when we moved into the property was to pull the grapes out because they were muscat and weren't making any money. Uh, probably <clears throat> put a lot of time and effort into it, but uh, never made any money. So grew up with agriculture, and my mother was also an art professor, so I had an appreciation for art and agriculture, and um, didn't really know if I wanted to pursue either of those, but when I was at UC Davis, I discovered the winemaking program, and it seemed to be the best of both worlds. You need science to make wine, but really to make great wine, it's, a, it's an art form. So I really got interested in winemaking once I was at Davis. So how did you end up choosing Davis over, uh, over the other uh, options or possibilities that existed? Well, my mother was a professor at uh, Cal State University, Fresno, and she said, you're not going to Fresno State, you need to get out of town. And so I chose UC Davis because uh, it was a great ag school and it was uh, you know, just a be- beautiful campus. So I ended up there without really knowing at the time they had the wine program. You you go to you go to Davis. Um, you don't go for for winemaking uh, in the in the first shot, right? You discover you discover wine somewhere during your educational journey at Davis. Yeah, I ended up getting a degree in biology, and as I was in my junior year in biology, um, you know, with various trips to the Napa Valley, um, you know, once we were 21 years old, I really uh, fell in love with the Napa Valley, with winemaking, and the idea of making wine. I had a couple of friends, friends who were from Napa, and uh, they were in viticulture. And um, I enjoyed viticulture. I still do now, but I really liked the idea of making wine, the chemistry, and the art of winemaking. So fell in love with that. And by the time I decided to switch to winemaking, um, it was too late at Davis. You're, you're limited into how many units you can take. So I said, okay, well, I'll prepare myself for the grad program and finish up with biology. And then... Um, worked a harvest at Inglenook before I went back to uh, Davis for the grad program. And what does the grad program look like? How is that different than the undergrad program? Uh, the one thing that uh, killed me was I had to take physical chemistry, and that was like one of the hardest classes I ever took. So there's a couple more rigorous science and math requirements, and then you do a, a master's thesis. So you do a research project and then write up a, a thesis that then is uh, approved by your thesis committee. You wrote your master's thesis on uh, on comparing French and American oak barrels uh, as it relates to aging 
Cabernet Sauvignon, is that correct? Right, right, yeah. How was that? Tell us a little bit about the difference, in a nutshell, your, your thesis and, and what you discovered. Well, it, it was great. I, I'm really happy I got to do that thesis. I had plenty of friends who worked on some obscure enzyme in a yeast or bacteria that they never used again. But this was one project that I thought could really be used in a production career, and it was great for me uh, because I focused a lot on oak, American, and French at BV. But what was interesting at the time, this was in the early 80s, um, American oak barrels for winemaking really didn't exist as far as uh, what we know today. Basically, what was available were uncharred uh, bourbon barrels. The American oak industry was strictly based in the Midwest, and they were producing barrels for whiskey. So Beaulieu actually um, is interesting. They had been buying some barrels for winemaking that were uncharred whiskey barrels. So, um, And they really were not the best as far as quality for the style that we want for winemaking. So when I uh, got involved with this um, master's thesis, it was the first time that American oak had been aged and toasted the same way that the French barrels have been done for years. Um, Tonellery Francaise had just opened in Calistoga, and Jean-Jacques Nadalier, who owned it, stumbled across some three-year air-dried American oak in Missouri, brought it back to Calistoga, and made it into barrels for the first time in a production capacity that American oak had been made in the French tradition. And then um, a predecessor of mine in the lab that I worked in had graduated and went to work at Jordan, and so they put the same wine into French and American oak barrels, so I got to come by a year later. The wine was already in the barrels, and then I got to do uh, analyses and uh, had a taste panel compare the two wines. So it was, it was a great, uh, great, you know, thesis to end up with. It's, it sounds like you were at the right at the the birth of of a new American oak movement. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was a, a great, a great project, and really helped me going forward with my career. I know while you were at uh, BV, American oak was an important aspect to to their program. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit, you know, a lot has been said about American oak. Does it get a bad rap? Well, I, I, I think it does a little bit, but I think also part of that is because of the history before the American oak barrels were made for wine. Um, you know, I was at BV in the early 80s, and all of my friends were at other Napa Valley wineries, and they said that they just knew they hated American oak because it, you know, it was so harsh and green you couldn't use it. And um, none of the barrels that had been produced prior to that time were uh, made for wine. And actually at BV, Andre Chelichev used American oak, and it was never his favorite oak, but he learned how to use it. So for decades, the George de la Tour Private Reserve Cabernet was aged in American oak, and people who quote-unquote hate American oak, loved it because they didn't know. And what he did was to leach out a lot of the tannins and then put a another wine in barrels for two years, and then it was ready for him to use for George de la Tour Cabernet. So he took out the negative components that now, as we age the wood for three years and toast it to our specs, is much, much more like French oak. So I think French oak is still, with consumers, considered a lot sexier, but 
Um, there's probably a lot more American oak barrels in use in this country than people have any clue about, and uh, you know it can be it can be great for a lot of different wines. So let me let me go off on, on a quick little tangent and ask you a question. Since there is a, a recent movement to use bourbon barrels in Cabernet production, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it sounds like somebody in marketing really getting involved with uh, some corporate t- technique, and you know, there's all sorts of barrels being used now for beer. Um, you know, different brewers are using different types of barrels and you know, making a big deal out of it. Um, there are plenty of spirits that are now being aged in sherry barrels or Cabernet barrels. So you know, the, there is some remaining liquid, whichever it is, whether it's sherry going into a scotch production, there's, you know, a couple gallons of liquid, whether it's wine, whether it's bourbon, um, sherry left in that barrel. So you do get some flavors. And um, I don't know, I I haven't tried the uh, Cabernet aged in bourbon barrels, but I I can never think of mixing a little uh, bourbon into my Cabernet. So I... uh, I guess I should try it before I say that it's, it really can't be very good. So after graduating from the master's program, what happened next in, in your career? Uh, well, actually, before I graduated, I'd finished my coursework, and I was working on my thesis, and um, Tom Selfridge, who was winemaker and vice president at Beaulieu, came to Davis to intergr- interview students for an enologist, assistant winemaker position, and... Um, he came up, and Dr. Singleton, who I worked with, set me up with an interview. And um, it's interesting. I really didn't want a real job. I wanted to work a harvest in Napa and then work a harvest down under somewhere and then one in Europe. And um, when he first came, he said, yeah, I need someone to start in August. And it was already July, and I had two months more worth of my research to do. So I said, well, I can't do that. And you know, it'd be September, end of September, the earliest. And so we kind of went away from that interview, and a couple of weeks later, he came back again. He said, well, I could probably go till September, and I said, that's still not quite enough. And then a week later, he had me come to the winery for an interview, and I figured, okay, I've got the job. Maybe I'll stay here for a year or two, and ended up spending 27 years at BV. So um, when I first worked there after harvest every Friday, I could leave at noon and go to Davis and continue working on my thesis until the next spring. I finished it and graduated. It was fortuitous to be able to work there and write your thesis at the same time, right? To be able to to see some of the effects of oak as uh, as you're writing the. Your I thesis. guess so. It was uh, working sixty to eighty hours a week, and then as soon as that stopped, then I got to leave on Fridays to go back to Davis to work all weekend on my thesis. So it wasn't much of a social life then, but after a few months, it was done and it was great. So it was really ended up being a great place to work, especially being able to focus on both French and American oak barrels. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the youngest winemakers at at BV at that time or in Napa Valley? Uh, Well, I think what they always said at BV was I was the youngest official winemaker at BV. So I started in 1982 as enologist, became assistant winemaker, and then uh, for the harvest of 85, was winemaker. So uh, had three and a half years under my belt and was 28 years old. And uh, it was great because Tom Selfridge, who had been there for years since the 70s, was still, the, he was president, so he didn't have time to do day-to-day winemaking. But 
uh, he really helped mentor me and he spent time with me for all of our important decisions. So it was great. It was a uh, you know, fast track to a you know, position that I loved. Your, your time at BV, uh, obviously tw- 28 years, is that what you said? 27. 27 yeah. years. Um, BV being one of the most historic properties and, and, and vineyards in, in Napa Valley and based in Rutherford. While you were there, you were in charge of a lot of innovation with, with BV, uh, specifically uh, as it relates to Chardonnay uh, and Pinot Noir winemaking techniques. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what are some of the things that, that you did differently? Yeah, so um, when I started, pretty much every wine was made by one, one recipe. Red wines were fermented in stainless steel, uh, no extended maceration. Um, all of the wines were blended, completed malolactic. They were then fined with gelatin, filtered, cold-stabilized, then filtered again, and then went to barrels. So perfectly clean, cold-stabilized wines went to barrels. Uh, Chardonnay was fermented in stainless and then fined and filtered before going to barrels because they had tried years ago barrel fermenting and it foamed over and made a big mess, so they said they'd never do it again. So luckily I got to um, have a lot of leeway with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir as far as winemaking, so I started barrel fermenting the Chardonnay, um, which you know, greatly increased the integration with the fruit and the oak, doing malolactic for a portion of it in barrels. <clears throat> and with Pinot Noir, instead of aging it in American oak, switched to French oak and uh, brought in tanks where we could have a small open-top fermenters to punch down by hand. Um, we worked with a lot of different clones of Pinot Noir. Uh, we did a clonal trial in the late 80s where we had 20 different clones, and that really helped us as we replanted the vineyards to get um, you know, what was really great for Carneros, the right, the right clones, because there really wasn't much available in the early 80s. It was a couple of clones that had been local that people had used. So um, it was great to transform the Pinot Noir from another kind of a simple red wine aged in American oak to, um, you know, at the time, I think Carneros, the way we grew grapes was a very, very cool region because the grapes had a lot of shade. As we grow grapes today, um, you kind of need to get to cooler and cooler regions to get that same long hang time. But um, it really transformed the, the Pinot Noir at BV and... Um, you know, made it a much more lush, modern, elegant wine. We had Richard Mendelson on the show, and he said that it was actually the, a bottling of BV, I forget the exact vintage, uh, Pinot Noir from Carneros, that helped him decide that he was going to be involved in the process of, of, of founding the Carneros AVA. Yeah, great. Yeah, I know Beaulieu was involved, uh, Anthony Bell and myself, with the uh, Appalachian, uh, with Richard as well. So while you were um, at, at BV, you also were in charge of plant, uh, replanting one of the historic vineyards in Rutherford. What was that like? I mean, here you're, you're transforming a, a vineyard that has been so important to a winery for uh, many, many years. Tell me how you'd go about deciding to, to innovate and, and replant that vineyard. Well, actually, the, uh, the timing was, was great. Um, we had, in, at BV, before 
Phylloxera had really started devastating much of the valley. We had a fan leaf, and so a fair amount of the vineyard was beginning to fail to fan leaf. But in 1980, before I started at BV, um, the team there had planted a trial of um, 14 different clones of Cabernet. And we had been able to make wine from each of those clones for a number of years and had a, a few that we really, really liked and preferred versus other clones and actually preferred quite a bit over the current clones that had been planted uh, clone 7 and 8, which was recommended from UC Davis, uh, they were not our favorites in the valley floor with the old California sprawl techniques that we had been using for decades. Um, <clears throat> so as we replanted, we started to go to much more vertical trellising, uh, used some new root stocks, and then planted a number of different clones. So it was actually really great. And a lot of the vineyard BV1 and BV2 are the two historic vineyards that George de la Tour purchased in the early 1900s. And um, we had mandus planted there. We had white grapes planted there. So we really upped our percentage of Cabernet and our diversity with different clones and a couple different rootstocks. So the timing was great. The technology had changed as far as how you train a vineyard. So, um, you know, it was it was all really, really good. And with phylloxera coming in, only a small amount of the vineyard dies every year, so we could replant 10 or 20% of the vineyard every year and still have plenty of production. And the resulting wines, once we got back into production, um, you know, were really, really received well. I was thrilled with the quality, uh, the ability to ripen fruit um, the way we wanted to rather than the old historic vineyards with the two wires and the California sprawl, we were lucky to get ripe every year, and ripe back then was 23, 23 and a half bricks. <laughs> Those were the days. I remember Andrei Chelichev telling me about years where he added brandy to the wine because it was only 11.5% alcohol. Anything you would have done differently with that vineyard? Um, probably at that time, I mean, it was fairly innovative, but we didn't do a lot of uh, tighter spacing. It was pretty wide spacing, and part of that was uh, the farming team that we worked with didn't want to change out all of their tractors. They had a whole fleet of tractors that worked with wider spacing. So it was narrower than it used to be, but it was not uh, as quite as tight as what we're doing today. When we come back, how Joel ended up working with two of the biggest names in the wine business and went on to help define and create one of America's most famous AVAs. Stay with us. This is the Stories Behind Wine from Napa Valley Wine Academy. This episode is made possible by Italian Wine Central. Italian Wine Central, your first and only stop for up-to-date information about the wines of Italy. From the developers of the Discovering Italian Wine Certificate course and the Italian Wine Professional Certification, Italian Wine Central is the only up-to-date and reliable resource for detailed descriptions of many of the types of wines produced in the hundreds of official wine denominations in Italy, along with information about the most significant Italian grape varieties. Italian Wine Central's statistic pages hold a wealth of current and up-to-date information about the Italian wine market, from production to export to consumption. 
Italian Wine Central is a resource that no wine student or expert should be without. And if you're looking to solidify your knowledge of Italian wine and gain an internationally recognized certification, check out ItalianWineCentral.com. That's ItalianWineCentral.com. It's the stories behind wine from Napa Valley Wine Academy. Joel has had the opportunity to work with two of the most famous names in the wine business. You had the the good fortune or, or, or opportunity to work with both the venerable Andre Chelichev and uh, Michel Roland, two two very renowned names in uh, in the wine business. What was it like to work with with each of them? Uh, well, I'd say in both cases it was great. They were very different. I mean, the people were different, but also what we were doing together was very different. Uh, Andre had really come back out of, um, I wouldn't say out of retirement. He left Beaulieu after the 73 harvest and began consulting around the world and had a very, very active consulting uh, career. Um, Many wineries in California, he was consulting up at Chateau Saint-Michel and Washington. He was consulting in Italy. Um, <clears throat> and we were coming up on a celebration of 50 vintages of the Georges de la Tour Reserve Cabernet and wanted Andre to get involved with that, what became a year-long celebration. And as it turns out, right before one of the big events, he, he at 88 years old, he rolled his 240Z on his way to Jordan Winery. I think he was late for a meeting. And got pretty banged up, and um, I think his doctor suggested that maybe at 88 he should slow down a little bit, and with coming back for this year-long celebration, he, d- he decided at the end of that to stop doing all of the other consulting, and really probably a good idea not do so much driving. So um, at the end of that, that year, with these uh, two big events, we had a big two-day tasting in uh, San Francisco, New York. He agreed to come back a couple days a week to consult in the morning. And um, we would just taste wines and talk philosophy together. And it was amazing. I'd be tasting a wine, and he would say, yeah, I had the same issue in 1946, and here's what I did. And it was a finding agent that I'd never even heard of. So he uh, was just a great person to be around. I I heard that when he was running the winery, he was very, very tough and probably not as enjoyable to be around because he really had to turn the winery around. But uh, he was so knowledgeable and so pleasant. uh, And one of the amazing things was he was the ultimate teacher, but every day that he came by, at the end of the day, he would say, Joel, thank you. I I learned something today. So he was always a great student. And I think one of the main things I learned from him was... um, no matter how well he had done with a wine or some production technique, he never was content. He always said, well, that was great. Now how can we improve? So he always was moving forward and wanting to change. And uh, you know, just a, a great person. And with Michel Roland, it, um, was, uh, we really had him come in to work with us on the Georges de la Tour through the decades, you know, that wine has evolved quite a bit, and we went from a very old-fashioned style that needed to age for 10 years before you really, you know, wanted to drink it. Uh, that was back in the early 80s when it was picked at 22 bricks, aged in American oak, much lower alcohol, higher acid. Uh, the equipment that we used was pretty rough on the grapes, and so we upgraded all of our equipment and vineyards in the 90s 
but then I, f I really felt that we could do even better and move it to another level. And um, to get the funding that we needed to do this new winery with new techniques, um, you know, we worked with Michelle, and you know, he agreed with everything that I had wanted to do, which included a lot of barrel fermenting. So him, him coming up on board helped us to get approval for the money to build this new winery um, with small fermenters with heating and cooling automated pump overs, which were pretty, pretty innovative for something uh, over 10 years ago. And then um, what I really did with him was we worked on blends together. And he's, uh, he's, he's got a great palate, great sense of, uh, you know, great blender and sense of what will build a, a wine for the future. So we uh, worked together. He would come in really just three, three days a year, and we would work on blends and tasting. And uh, it was always a great uh, day where we worked really well together on discussing, you know, this component, that component, and I learned from him as well. Some things that I wouldn't have put in in the final blend were, uh, were really helping it. So it was, it was great working with him as well. What an amazing opportunity to work with Andre. That, that, that must oh, have yeah, been. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Something else that, that, that you helped craft besides wine is probably one of the, if not the most famous AVA in, in Napa Valley, uh, and that's the Rutherford uh, AVA, which was founded in 1993. Can you tell us a little bit about how Ruther the Rutherford AVA uh, came to, to be and a little bit about why it's so special? Um, well, I think, you know, there's, uh, there's as much history in Rutherford for Cabernet as any other AVA, probably more so with Inglenook starting in 1879 and um, getting lots of accolades early on in uh, the, <clears throat> the lifetime of Inglenook and then George de la Tour in 1900 founding Beaulieu and both of them on the classic Rutherford bench. Um, great location for Cabernet throughout the whole valley and within Rutherford. So I think there was a lot of history there. And um, Rutherford, as far as being special for Cabernet, I think it's the right place of the valley as far as temperature. Um, you know, north and south, you can grow some great Cabernet. But there's something unique about Rutherford, um, you know, there's plenty of hang time. It doesn't get too ripe in most years. But we get a you know, good time to develop complexity and flavor, and especially where BV and Inglenook are on the alluvial fan, which is what we call the Rutherford Bench. Um, it's really a special place within the Napa Valley with the gravelly, well-drained soils. It's not mountain fruit, but um, when you're at the vineyards that are the furthest west of the highway that look like they're on the valley floor, they're actually about 50 feet higher in elevation than the ground level on the highway, which is less than a mile away. So there's a gradual rise to get great drainage, rocky, gravelly, well-drained soils, which is great to give you smaller berries, more intensity, not the same as mountain fruit, but kind of, you know, in between mountain fruit and valley floor fruit near the river. So I, I think it's just that combination, a, a beautiful climate for Cabernet and some of the best soils that you can get. There was a plan at one point to create a Rutherford bench AVA. Uh, that didn't come to pass. Was that a mistake? Was that a mistake that there is no Rutherford Bench AVA or, or do you think it's we're better for not having it? Well, I, I can't say it's a mistake. It, uh, I was involved with the whole uh, 
work on the ABA, and there's a small group of us that started out uh, wanting to do the Rutherford bench, and because that was so historic, mainly because of the history of BV and Inglenook, um, and it's unique within Rutherford, and maybe not in our lifetime, but you know, at some point, maybe there would be a sub-AVA of Rutherford called the Rutherford Bench. But what happened was whenever we drew up the line, <laughs> whoever was on the other side of the line said, okay, well, we'll uh, our lawyers will talk to your lawyers. And it was kind of like, okay, this isn't something that is going to happen anytime soon. Let's start off with Rutherford, which I think is great because what we've done throughout the valley has gotten you know, basically certain areas, the, the broader areas. So there's many differences in vineyards in Oakville, but there's an Oakville appellation. And you know maybe through the decades or centuries, we'll get more like Burgundy, um, where sub areas within an appellation get a, a unique designation. So you know the, the French have a couple years heads, couple hundred years head start on us. So um, it wasn't really till we did a lot of replanting in the 80s and 90s that we got the right varieties in the right places. And I think now we can really focus on, you know, is the alluvial, alluvial fan area of the Rutherford Bench significantly different than other parts? And not to say that it's better or worse, which I think is especially why Rutherford Bench didn't happen, because it was implied that it was better. I think now distinct differences um, people celebrate that, and if the east side of the Rutherford Appalachian and those uh, hillsides is something unique, maybe in a, a few decades that would be a, a certain area of Rutherford that gets a unique description. So I think it's it's going to take some time, uh, but at, you know, in the end, I think it's great that we have Rutherford. So Rutherford is, you know, a, a great region. Oakville has its region, and yeah, like I said, they they could be. Uh, subdivided in the future decades. You also sit on the, the Rutherford Dust Society um, as part of their, their founding group. Talk to us a little bit about what that organization is and, and how it came to be. Okay, yeah, once the um, Appalachian was founded, approved in 1993, then a group of us, uh, really a, a lot of it was led by Andy Beckstoffer, formed the Rutherford Dust Society, which... Um, was not meant at all to be a, a marketing uh, group. It was really to get the uh, the people of Rutherford together and you know show what we can do with our grape growing, the quality of grapes, and do some community projects. So we would try to get the, the little community together for various events. And then uh, one of the best things that we started oh, now over 10 years ago was restoring the Napa River within the Rutherford, what we call the Rutherford Reach, because uh, the Napa River has been um, an endangered river because of all of the silt that has gone into it for decades, um, just a, a lot of abuse from decades ago that you know, have uh, impacted the fish there, and somebody on one side of the river would build up, build up their levee so it would flood on their neighbor's side, and they would build up their levee, and it really uh, did a lot of damage to the the natural area of the river, river and did not help at all with um, the ecology of the region. So it was uh, amazing how many growers gave up millions of dollars of their land to make it become part of the river. So now with, with some of the you know, biggest rains we've had in decades this year, uh, 
the Napa River area in Rutherford was was perfect. No no damage, no major flooding. Um, and now I think other parts of the valley are following through. Oakville is doing the same thing, and it, it's bringing it back to where it was with nature before man intruded. So the, the Rutherford Dust Society does um, a number of things. We, we donate to local charities, to the Rutherford Fire Department, 4-H, and the Rutherford Grange. So um, it's, you know, it, it's a, a small, little, diverse community trying to bring it together and then focus on the on our industry. And, you know, now we're trying to get more and more attention to the grapes and wines of Rutherford. So Rutherford is obviously an area that is known for, uh, for its Cabernet. And over these years, when you started in, in, in the 80s, Napa Valley looked a little bit different, right? Cabernet wasn't king at, at that point. What, what, was, what was the predominant grape variety back then? Oh, gosh, was there a predominant grape variety? Uh, Chardonnay was popular. There was still a lot of Zinfandel and Petite Syrah all over the valley. Um, and a lot of that went to the Napa Valley Co-op, which was really part of Gallo. So it was interesting. Um, I started in the 80s, and a lot of the vineyards that BV um, contracted with were growers who came in decades ago and bought their 50, 100 acres, whatever it was, and planted what they knew. So Shannon Blanc, Riesling, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Merlot. And often to get the, the Cabernet, we had to buy all of their other fruit. So um, Cabernet was always king at BV, but it was not king throughout the valley until really, I would say, probably late 80s, 90s. So um, in one sense, as phylloxera came through and wiped out the grapes in the valley, you know, it was devastating. But all of those varieties that weren't where they should have been planted got replaced with newer, for newer trellising, new um, rootstocks, and the right clones of the right varieties. So in the end, it really, that 10, 15-year process of having to replant the entire valley uh, really turned out to give us the much, much better vineyards. So it was a, a, a tough you know, pill to swallow, but in the end, it really helped quality. And it was as everyone was turning to Cabernet. So we got rid of the Up Valley Pinot Noir. We got rid of the Chardonnay that was grown in Calistoga and got the right varieties in the right places. So fast forward to 2009, and you've left BV at this this point, and you've started your own brand, Aiken, uh, Aiken Wines, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Surprisingly, you work with many vineyards outside of, of Napa Valley, right? Here's a guy who's been with, with BV for 27 years, and now you start your own brand, and, and you reach beyond Napa Valley. Tell us a little bit about why that is. Well, when I was at Bolio, I was always based in Rutherford, but I oversaw a, a few different programs for BV. One was BV Coastal, and we got fruit for that brand from all over the state and typically the cooler coastal regions. And <clears throat> as I mentioned in the 80s, when we made Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from Carneros, the way we grew grapes back then with the rootstocks and all of the shade that we produced, Carneros was about as cool as an area where you could grow Pinot Noir. And once we started going upright with training and trellising, pulling leaves, um, having restrictive rootstocks, doing less irrigation, it was a lot easier to ripen fruit. And for me, 
to make a great Pinot Noir, it really needs hang time, and you don't get that if you can ripen it really quickly. So um, I wanted to, you know, I, I loved what we made out of Carneros, but I did want to spread my wings a little bit and work over with some of my friends in on the Sonoma side. And so started, uh, first Pinot Noir was from Sonoma Mountain, which um, is kind of a, a unique area. It's the smallest appellation within Sonoma, and I always liked hillside fruit. We never had mountain fruit for Pinot Noir and was able to secure a few tons from this vineyard called Silver Pines that I, I really love because it had a lot of intensity and power. So my Pinot will, from that vineyard will age not quite as long as a Cabernet, but age really, really well. And all of my wines, I make a Rutherford Cabernet, and Oakville Cabernet, been making this Sonoma Mountain Pinot Noir since the beginning. All of the wines are really... They're enjoyable today, but they're built to age. So I yeah, wanted to do something other than what I had done in Carneros. And I've, I've made other Pinot Noirs, one from down in Santa Rita Hills from the Fiddlesticks Vineyard that I love as well. So um, didn't want to just uh, just be honed in by the Napa Valley. So what's it like making making your own wines, having your own brand and, and being the captain of your own ship versus working for one of the big and, and historic properties in, in Napa Valley. What's, how is it different? Uh, it's quite a bit different. I mean, they've both been great, but, um, you know, I was at Beaulieu for 27 years and just thought, okay, it's time for something new and different. And it's, um, it's a, <laughs> you've got to say it was easier being at BV because we got so many tons of fruit to be able to make blends of our very best wines. And here I am making my own wine, and I bring in two and a half tons to make a Pinot Noir, and I need every ounce of that two and a half tons, so there's no blending to do. So I'm able to spend more time in the vineyards than I was. By, by the time you know, I was at the level I was at at BV, I, it was hard for me to find time to taste wines with my crew and get out into vineyards, and that's really why I got in the business. So doing my own wine gave me all the time I needed to work with growers that I knew who grew really, really good fruit. <clears throat> Rather than buying my own vineyard, I, I knew uh, who had the best, uh, some of the best Cabernet in Rutherford, in Oakville, and, and the Pinot Noirs. So I could spend a lot of time in the vineyard and really spend my time in the cellar sculpting the wine, getting back to day-to-day winemaking that had really become pretty distant for me at BV. Um, BV was great because I had opportunities that you know, very few people would have to look at 50 different vineyards of Cabernet within Napa Valley, as well as going beyond Napa for a lot of our fruit sourcing. But um, yeah, it's uh, quite a bit different. Uh, there's no room for error, but I can pay a lot more attention myself to every aspect of how the grapes are grown, what happens during fermentation, barrel aging. And then, uh, then I get to go out and show it uh, as my own wine, which is something I have a lot of pride in and, and enjoy. So it's the entire process. I don't hand it off to a salesperson. It's uh, kind of me going out, showing the wine, and uh, working with folks to, uh, to enjoy it. So you, you work with some, some phenomenal vineyards, and, and I, I have to imagine there's some trust that has to exist there between the person who's growing the fruit and, and the person making the wine. And I guess my question is, does someone with your renown and and your name and pedigree and history have easier access to those great vineyards, or is it really just money that 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 talks? 
No, it's it's funny. Um, my Rutherford Cabernet I purchased from Gary Morisoli. He is a fourth generation grower. He has 50 acres on the Rutherford bench, so he's right next to Inglenook, Scarecrow, and Phelps Manly Lane. So it's one of the best vineyard areas in in the the entire you know, Napa Valley and the, in the entire country. Um, he's an old dirt farmer. Um, if you want him to sign a contract, he might do it, but it's a handshake, and he says, I sell the people that I want to work with that I uh, trust. So big corporations coming in, he's like, nope, not going to do it. So he sells to a lot of small winemakers that he knows. Um, plenty of people during the recession, when they didn't have money to pay right away, he'd say, well, pay me when you can. And uh, I actually wanted him to sign a contract thinking, you know, someday you might get, you know, you might fall off your tractor and die, and we don't want somebody to take over your vineyard. So he, he reluctantly signed a five-year contract, but he's much happier just doing a handshake with people he loves. So um, I get into vineyards because they, I think some growers know what my you know, my history is and what my capability is for you know, doing something great with their, their fruit. And the same at Oakville Ranch, which is where I get my Oakville Cabernet, um, they have a lot more people wanting to get their fruit than uh, they have fruit to sell. But uh, Phil Katuri, who is this great farmer up there, uh, knew me from BV, knew what I was doing, and was able to get me a, a couple tons of fruit when he didn't really have fruit available for anyone else. So um, it's, it's not money. It's, I think, the trust uh, between the grower and the winemaker. And you know, frankly, with uh, those guys... I'll go up and you know give my two cents as far as the farming goes, but if I don't go up there for a couple months in the summer, they're going to do exactly what needs to be done. They aren't in it just to make money and get yields. They're in it to do. They have a lot of pride in what they do. That's great. <clears throat> Let me ask you a, a, a difficult question, and I'll give you a minute to, to ponder this one. If I told you or someone with great authority told you, hey, you can no longer make wines in California, time to pick another part of the world, where would you go to make wines and, and what type of wine would you make? Hmm. Well, there's lots of options there. Um, I've, I've got to say one, one thing I've always enjoyed are the, the wines of the Rhone. And I, uh, I love Grenache, I love Syrah. Um, as much as I love Cabernet, I, I drink a lot of those wines. And I, I think that would be kind of fun to go down there and Chateauneuf-du-Pape, you can blend all these different varieties together to sculpt what you want. Um, some of the northern Rhones that are all Syrah are amazing as well. So um, that would be something new and different. I've done a lot of Cabernet and Pinot Noir, but um, love those wines and you know love the people there as well. So it would uh, be kind of fun to do. Anything that you would have done different during your your career? If you look back now uh, over this time in, in, in winemaking and, and your time in the wine world, anything you look back to and say, gosh, had I only known, I would have done this differently? <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a number of little things that uh, we would all change. But, you know, it's it's hard to complain about you know, anything in my career. It's uh, It's been great. Um you know, the, the time at BV was an amazing, wonderful experience, an opportunity not many people have, and now to do my own thing is wonderful as well. So uh, 
you know, you can always find a few things that you would tweak, but looking back on it, it's been pretty great. It's been a lot of work, but very rewarding, and um, I'd do it all over again. If you were given the opportunity to invite two or three people from, from the wine world, living or, or dead, to a dinner party and sit down with them and, and, and ask them any question, who, who would you pick? Who would, who would be sitting at this table? And what, what are some of the questions you'd want answers to? Oh, gosh, who would that be? Um, not just to choose locals, but I think it would be fun to uh, have gotten together with uh, Bob Mandavi and Andre and just uh, hear from their perspective as they grew up in the industry what they went through because they really helped to pioneer the Napa Valley, and we know a lot about their history, but to hear from them one-on-one -on -one what they were going through at the time would, uh, would be lots of fun. Um, I saw them together once when Robert was in his you know, late 80s, Andre was in his 90s, and they didn't have much interaction, but um, there, there's a lot of history there between those two that would be fun to see more of uh, how it evolved through the decades. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that, for that dinner party, for sure. So what's next for you? What's, what's next for Joel Aiken? What, what, what are your plans? Uh, well, I'm enjoying making my own wine and having that not be what it was at BV, where it's uh, 60, 80-hour weeks during harvest. I keep plenty busy. I'm doing a little consulting and um, you know, probably keep my brand as it is about the same size. But I do enjoy, as Andre did, consulting with other folks who are, uh, have needs or you know, want some direction in their winemaking. And, um, you know, like to uh, do that and have different clients every few years to show what they can do with their property. It's, uh, it's fun, and, you know, I think they get a lot out of it. It's educational, and I'm, uh, I think at this point in my career, enjoying that, you know, quite, quite a bit. So happy to do more of that. One, one last question. What piece of advice would you give to someone looking to get into, uh, into the wine business and becoming a winemaker? What What's what's a word of wisdom that you could <laughs> could share with them? Um, I think to become a winemaker, you know, I would say, yeah, go for it. But really go out and taste all of the wines that you can, taste wines from different parts of the world so you don't get boxed into one thing that you think is the way it has to be. Keep, uh, keep an open mind. This is something I, I learned from Andre. Um, you know, learn from other people, share, taste, uh, one thing that was interesting, when I first started at BV, we had a lot of experiments and research going on, and none of it was shared with anyone else. It was it sounds kind of like a corporate thing where uh, we're going to get this and no one else will know it. And once I had the ability to start sharing it, I would say for every bit of information we gave out, we got 10 times as much back from other people saying, oh, well, here's what I did and you know something I had never thought of. And that's how Andre always was. And I think... In the wine industry, when you plant a grape, it takes four years to get grapes to really ripen appropriately, and then three or four years of aging in the barrel and bottle. It's not the computer industry where you can create a chip that will take over the industry overnight. So the more you can share with your colleagues, the better. So learning all about different wines of the world, keeping an open mind, uh, but go for it. Winemaking is a, a great career. You'll work hard, but it's very re rewarding. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, for joining us uh, today and and sharing a little bit inside of, of your history and and your time in uh, in the wine industry. No, oh, glad to be here. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Great. You have been listening to the Stories Behind Wine podcast. This show is made possible by the Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and share us with your friends.